Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Hong Kim. Dr. Kim did his emergency medicine training at NYU following his getting his MD at UCSF. Uh, followed up his uh, residency training, um, which included a chief residency with a toxicology fellowship at NYU, which is sort of the mecca for toxicology, um, and has been here at uh, University of Maryland over the past uh, Split. Two years now. So um, today, uh, as you can see for the title, it's toxic hemoglobinopathies, carbon monoxide, and methemoglobinemia are the topics being discussed. Thanks. Great. Thanks. All right. Is this okay? All right. So uh, thanks for the introduction and thanks for uh, having me again. So today we're going to talk about how the red blood cells get poisoned by different uh, chemical and medication exposures. And we're going to predominantly focus on carbon monoxide poisoning and uh, drug or chemical-induced uh, hemoglobinemia. Um, overall, what we're going to uh, uh, learn about today is to, to identify different sources of exposure, as well as to understand the pathophysiology uh, beyond just formation of whether it be carboxyhemoglobin or methemoglobin itself, and to recognize different patient population who are actually at risk as well as poison. And we're going to uh, spend majority of the time actually talking about the management uh, of each uh, carbon monoxide poisoning and methemoglobin, and talk about some of the controversies that uh, surrounds uh, each uh, management approach, whether it be hyperbarics or methylene blue administration in G6PD uh, deficiency patients. So we're going to start off with carbon monoxide. Uh, it's generally described as a leading public health problem uh, in respect to the poisoning in the world. And it's often uh, referred as a silent killer because uh, it does not have any smell or color. Now, it truly affects all population, whether it be you're in developed country or developing country. And particularly in the East Asian countries, a lot of uh, population there uses these charcoal bricks during the wintertime as a source of heating for their family. And that has been identified as a primary or leading source of carbon monoxide poisoning. And as well as some uh, kind of uh, recreational activities, such as hookah smoking, has been associated with a carbon monoxide uh, poisoning as well. This particular one uh, from May of this year, this 20-year-old uh, woman actually smoked hookah for an hour a day and was later to uh, have a, a carboxyhemoglobin level of 25%, which is pretty impressive. And more recently, only about a month ago, uh, in the eastern shore, a family of eight died from carbon monoxide poisoning when the parents could not pay the electric bill, and hence the electric company turned off their electricity. And, you know, there were a couple of cold days back uh, even in April, and uh, the father brought in the portable generator into the kitchen to provide electricity, and subsequently family of eight died as a result. Now, some of you may uh, actually recognize this town, New York City, uh, this is the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Sandy about two and a half years ago. And it, it's probably identified as the largest uh, uh, hurricane that hit this tri-state area. And it caused significant power outage as well. And with that, there was a, a significant peak in both hyperthermia as well as hy uh, carboxy, uh, I'm sorry, carbon monoxide poisoning due to predominantly the use of a portable generator uh, which was kept in an improperly ventilated area, such as like in the garage instead of being outside. But when we look at the overall uh, epidemiology, and all carbon monoxide poisoning kills about 3,500 to 4,000 people each year and responsible for about 50 
8,000 ED visits. But when we kind of focus our attention to unintentional and non-fire related, still it uh, still kills a significant number uh, of patients and victims, about 500 and up to 20,000 ED visits. And as mentioned uh, previously, uh, the trend of it does occur uh, during the uh, winter time. And it kind of makes sense because, you know, it is cold, you're likely to uh, use uh, other sources of uh, heating devices if you don't have electricity. And it predominantly occurs between the month of December to February. And for U.S., uh, the coldest regions, which are Midwest and Northeast. And because when it's cold out there, you have a tendency to stay home, thus home exposure is uh, over 70% of these unintentional cases. So just to uh, briefly talk about carbon monoxide, it is related to combustion of uh, organic uh, fuel as well as the hydrocarbon and setting of an incomplete combustion, which is what we encounter in our practical lives, uh, so to speak. And it produces, yes, water, carbon dioxide, soot, and carbon monoxide. And the incomplete combustion is represented by the orange flame. But as you have a higher content of oxygen, it approaches near complete combustion where you achieve only emission of uh, CO2 and uh, hydrogen, uh, I'm sorry, water, which is uh, overall impractical and does not really exist in our day-to-day uh, -day life here. So in our own body, we still have certain degree of a uh, carboxyhemoglobin level, about one to two percent, and that's related to the way we degrade our heme. And as you can see from the, uh, the equation here, um, mediated by the heme oxygenase, to convert the heme into uh, biliverdin, you emit one molecule of carbon monoxide. Hence, we have a uh, basal uh, line uh, level of about one to two percent. But if you're a smoker, of course, definitely, uh, because you're inhaling all those uh, smoke, uh, your levels can be up to about uh, five to 10%. And it's estimated that if you smoke about a pack per day, your carboxyhemoglobin uh, level can be increased by about 5%. Now, common sources, it's mostly residential fire. Um, you know, I had a talk about a couple months ago about cyanide. In a setting of a residential fire victim, you have to be also con uh, concerned about potential cyanide exposure, which can be released from synthetic uh, uh, material combustion, as well as carbon monoxide. Other motor vehicles, uh, it's a little bit more difficult these days to actually be poisoned with the carbon monoxide due to catalytic converter, which was introduced in back in 1975. But it, you know, with some considerable effort, uh, you can still become severely poisoned. And other um, engine exhaust includes motorboats, right? It wasn't until 2010 when the catalytic converters were introduced on the motorboats, and a lot of people have uh, uh, lake parties or boat parties during the summertime. And it's one reason not to sit on the back of the boat, right, because of these exhausts. As well as the lawnmowers has been also attributed to uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, Home exposures, uh, there's plenty of appliances that burns natural gas, ovens, water heater, furnace. Um, again, propane uh, space heaters are seldom used in different households. But again, the portable generator during winter time is one of the leading causes of carbon uh, monoxide emission. And of course, charcoal grilling. And of course, when you're trying to get that fire, you have that inhalation of those you know, smoke and so forth, and you become a little dizzy there. 
right? Occupational exposures, pre uh, predominantly propane power equipment, uh, such as um, bony machines and forklift. There's a, a trend of uh, changing the power source of the forklift to the electricity these days. But overall, it's related to the ventilation or the amount of uh, uh, air exchange within the factories that actually contributes to the uh, the carbon monoxide exposure rather than uh, a direct uh, working environment with these equipments. You can also ingest uh, chemicals, methylene chloride, and uh, develop a, a delayed and prolonged uh, carbon monoxide uh, poisoning. And these methylene chloride is often uh, involved in pain strippers as well as degreasing agents. But the reason that it has a delayed and prolonged effect uh, or poisoning is that it has to undergo hepatic metabolism by 2E1. It's similar to like, you know, uh, toxic alcohol, right? You don't actually uh, develop the symptomatology other than perhaps intoxication uh, on, during the acute presentation, but as the, uh, the toxic alcohol gets metabolized, you start seeing the metabolic acidosis and perhaps end organ injury. Now, most common abnormalities that we uh, know of uh, regarding carbon monoxide poisoning is formation of carboxyhemoglobin. Now, once the carbon monoxide gas is inhaled, it ra it's rapidly uh, absorbed into the plasma and distributed into the red blood cells as well as the tissue. Um, as most of us know, that the hemoglobin has a, a very high affinity to carbon uh, monoxide compared to the oxygen itself. And other tissues include myoglobin, again, 60-fold increase in affinity uh, for carbon monoxide versus oxygen, as well as the mitochondria. Now, what it does in terms of impact of oxygen delivery, uh, besides the fact that of, it decreases the carrying capacity of oxygen, is that the carbon monoxide, as well as uh, the subsequent result of a decrease in 2,3-bisphosphoglyceric uh, acid, it shifts the dissociation curve of oxygen to the left, and hence it retains the oxygen on the other oxyhemoglobins rather than releasing onto the peripheral tissue. So what it's been described uh, in regards to the carboxyhemoglobin formation is that it creates a functional anemia where all those uh, X amount of uh, carboxyhemoglobin does not participate in the gas exchange. But the overall you know, uh, poisoning does not uh, be explained by the degree of carboxyhemoglobin concentration alone. And that's uh, uh, demonstrated by this uh, nice animal study from 1975 by Goldbaum. So what he did is he took a group of five dogs in group one and demonstrated that, yes, carbon, dioxide, carbon monoxide exposure can kill. So basically, you know, he let them breathe carbon monoxide until they died, and they had a carboxy level, uh, hemoglobin level of between 50 to 90%. For a second group, another five dogs, he just basically bleed them to the, uh, on average, decrease about 70% uh, of hemoglobin. And with a little bit of resuscitation with fluid, they all survived. And of course, what's the most intriguing fact is that he took the group two, right, and he infused uh, RBCs with a 80% carboxyhemoglobin, and they all survived without any developing toxicity. And from this point on, we know that it does have other uh, pathophysiology, including uh, it creates mitochondrial dysfunction. It combines to the cytochrome C, A3 portion, or otherwise known as the complex 4 in the electron transportane. It is actually the same site or cytochrome that cyanide binds to. But unlike cyanide, the carbon monoxide binding does not uh, terminate 
the electron transport chain itself. And thus, it creates some uh, dysfunction of the aerobic metabolism rather than a termination of aerobic metabolism, uh, which is a result of the cyanide poisoning. Now, beyond that, there is an uh, extensive description of the actual pathophysiology. Uh, and briefly, you know, it's categorized as a hypoxic and oxidative stress, as this, uh, listed here combined with the inflammatory cascade. And those two processes combines to cause direct neuronal injury and lipid peroxidation uh, in the brain in itself, and thus causing the uh, acute uh, as well as the delayed symptomatologies of carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, when we look at the symptomatology, uh, it has a wide spectrum uh, depending on on both carbon monoxide level as well as uh, the duration of exposure. But to uh, kind of uh, to look at it a little bit more simply, um, yes, to a certain degree, the symptoms does somewhat correlate, but it doesn't. This table doesn't uh, take into consideration of the duration of exposure itself. But as you can see, even a lower level of like 10 to 20 percent, you begin to develop some vague symptoms. And such as headache and malaise and fatigue. And once you have an increased level of carbon, uh, carboxyhemoglobin, then you start developing some uh, focal uh, end organ injuries such as neurologic deficits, chest pain, acute MI, and so forth. And at a levels approximately greater than 50%, you start having loss of consciousness, um, seizures, cardiovascular collapse, and death. Now, overall, it is somewhat difficult to uh, recognize uh, carbon monoxide poisoning with physical exam and vital signs on, uh, alone. And that's basically unremarkable. Um, but what does help us is the actual history of the patient presentation. And as mentioned before, it is uh, more common during the winter time where we have to use uh, heating devices, especially, uh, especially after large storms where there's electrical outages. It is estimated that approximately 5% of the, uh, the diagnosis of influenza in the wintertime may actually be carbon monoxide poisoning that was unrecognized. And of course, the typical symptomatology is headache, dizziness that improves when one per, uh, a person or the victim goes outside uh, removing themselves from the exposure. Now, this is a, uh, a graph of a, uh, that illustrates the, the degree of oxyhemoglobin in a setting of increasing carbon, uh, carboxyhemoglobin, and that demonstrates that the overall, the pulse ox measurement does not acutely change even if the carboxyhemoglobin is up to 70% with a corresponding oxyhemoglobin of 30%. So overall, even though there's a, a such impressive degree of uh, potential hypoxia within the physiology itself, the actual number that is produced by the pulse oximetry does not necessarily cor correspond to the degree of poisoning. And as you are all familiar with, the diagnosis is achieved by cooximetry, uh, which unlike the pulse ox, it uses multiple wavelengths between five to seven. Uh, the pulse ox uses uh, uh, the red and infrared at 660 and 940 nanometers, which is unable to identify uh, other hemoglobinopathy outside of oxy and deoxy hemoglobins. And we do have a, a portable uh, coximetry device called, made by Massimo Rad57. 
Um, yes, it's a great screening tool, which is uh, carried by both uh, fire department as well as the EMS. But some of the uh, the previous reports have uh, identified that the actual reading from the RAD 57 has a tendency to underestimate the actual coaxy or uh, carboxy hemoglobin level compared to the uh, coaximetry. Thus, you know, it's a good screening test, but every positive test from uh, RAD 57 should be confirmed with a coaximetry. Now, some investigators actually looked at some various laboratory markers, and of interest is lactate. And like cyanide, um, cyanide, we don't have a, a blood test to confirm exposure or diagnosis. It's, yes, it's a send out, so you will have it back in about three days or so, well, at which time that is too late. And from uh, the previous experiences, mostly in France, the cyanide actually uh, highly corresponded with the elevated lactate of approximately 10. But similar correlation does not exist with a, uh, a carbon monoxide exposure. And that, again, goes back to the mitochondrial dysfunction rather than cessation of the aerobic uh, metabolism. And as you can see from this uh, graph, when you are measuring or plotting the different lactate level uh, in corresponding to the different degree of severity of carbon monoxide poisoning, there is really no true correlation that can be identified. Uh, one additional findings that you can find in the imaging study is that you have a, a bilateral basal ganglia lesion. Um, again, it is uh, you know, believed that the basal ganglia is very sensitive to the hypoxic injury, and thus uh, this finding is relatively common in a moderate to severe uh, poisoning, uh, especially poisoning uh, patients who uh, experience the loss of consciousness. But other um, chemicals has also been able to produce similar findings such as cyanide, hydrogen sulfide, toxic alcohol, and uh, toluene, which is a, uh, a solvent. So, in terms of management, you know, it's the overarching uh, approach is first, remove from exposure, which can be performed at a pre-hospital setting, and two, is to facilitate uh, uh, carbon monoxide elimination. And of course, as you can see, you know, by just being in an ambient air, you can start to eliminate carbon monoxide with about half-life about five hours. But when you administer 100% oxygen, again, in ambient atmospheric pressure, that number goes significantly down to about an hour and a half. But when we increase the, uh, uh, the pressure under the hyperbarics, that uh, elimination half-life can be decreased to under 25%. So hence, uh, hyperbaric does have an effect in terms of carbon monoxide elimination from the uh, carboxyhemoglobin. Now what it does in terms of conceptual, uh, conceptual uh, 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 practice is that hyperbaric increases the oxygen content and when we look at uh, the actual formula of the oxygen content which is you know oxygen that is bound to the hemoglobin versus, uh, versus the dissolved which I'm sure that you guys may be dealing with uh, on an everyday basis. Um, what it actually impacts is the dissolved uh, oxygen. It increases the partial pressure of O2 by greater than uh, 1,500 millimeters mercury. And basically what it does is that it's competitively squeezing out the carbon monoxide off of the hemoglobin and hence facilitating the elimination. But when we actually look at the pathophysiology, you know, carbon uh, hyperbaric therapy has also been demonstrated 
besides the fact that that improves cellular respiration by one, removing carbon monoxide from both hemoglobin as well as the uh, mitochondria, it also has shown in an animal studies to decrease neuronal uh, injury by antagonizing the lipid peroxidation. Basically, that's like melting your fat so that it interferes your brain architecture, as well as the decreasing uh, leukocyte adhesion to uh, decrease the inflammatory cascade. So hyperbaric chambers comes in two flavors. Uh, the one we have in uh, University of Maryland is the multi-place, uh, which can hold up to uh, 23 uh, patients and provider. And of course, uh, different places may have a monochamber uh, for wound healing and so forth. And Michael Jackson used to be in one of those hyperbaric chambers before he got into propofol. Um, now, one of the most concerning, uh, the effect that the hyperbaric medicine is trying to prevent is what's known as a delayed sequela. Now, the patient who survives carbon monoxide poisoning can be asymptomatic for up to 40 days. And all of a sudden, they develop these delayed symptoms. And that could be a focal neurologic deficit, such as ataxia, Parkinsonism, paralysis, and so forth, or predominantly related to behavior, cognitive function, memory, even acute psychosis has been described. Now, here we're going to go into the, the actual controversy about the hyperbarics. Whether it be toxicology, emergency medicine, or um, hyperbaric medicine in general, the, the opinion about the beneficial effect of hyperbarics in preventing the delayed effect, uh, as mentioned previously, is split. And that's based upon these two papers, which are double-blind randomized controlled trials. There's only two, and these two are it. And the Weaver demonstrated positive effect. Shine Castle uh, demonstrated uh, a negative effect. So we're going to uh, kind of look at them a little bit more in detail. Uh, the Shine Castle's paper uh, came uh, earlier in 99 at uh, Medical Journal of Australia. Basically, they had about 191 patients. They randomized into control and treatment. And what they did is that they've applied daily 60-minute uh, therapy at 2.8 atmospheric pressure. Now, at the end of the day, or at the end of three days, if the patient continued to have a poor outcome, those specific patients received three additional treatments, meaning three additional day. And on average, uh, the hyperbaric therapy, whether it be sham or not, was initiated uh, about seven hours later after the CO exposure. Now, during the three to, four, uh, three to six hospital day course, they all received supplementary oxygen by face mask, four liters per minute. Um, and then suicide attempt was uh, approaching 70%, so they had higher number of intubated patients, higher number of patients who experienced coma, loss of consciousness, and et cetera. And what they did is, yes, they performed a battery of neuropsychiatric testing after they, uh, the participants completed their therapy and at one month. But the follow-up, unfortunately, was less than 50%, uh, which is uh, one of the big criticisms of this paper. And what they found is that at time of discharge, whether you, it was a treatment or control, there was no statistic uh, significant difference uh, between preventing the neuropsychiatric sequelae. And at one month, again, that difference was um, uh, unnoticeable. And, but uh, what, they, uh, what they did find is that they did find a higher incidence of a delayed neurologic sequela under the treatment uh, uh, wing. And thus, 
from that result, they concluded that hyperbarics did not work. Now, we go on to three years later, uh, Weaver's paper uh, published in New England Journal of Medicine. Um, their sample size was a little small, uh, 156. No big difference, but uh, again, it's smaller. Uh, they randomized again into uh, hyperbaric and control. But as you can see, they received or performed three sessions within 24 hours. Okay, a striking difference between the previous studies. The mean initiation of treatment under six hours. And when we actually look at the chamber uh, pressure and duration, uh, the image on the top is the first session, one hour in three ATM, and followed by another hour in two ATM. Second and third sessions were both uh, a two ATM for about uh, 100 minutes. Again, different. The uh, supplementary oxygen was only administered prior to the first uh, hyperbaric, whether it be a sham therapy or not, and the uh, remaining pay, uh, duration of their hospital course, they did not receive uh, any additional uh, uh, oxygen. And suicide attempt was uh, slightly less, about 31%. And what they found is that they did perform the neuropsychiatric testing more frequently and longer in duration. Their follow-up was near complete at 97%. And uh, what they've described as a cognitive sequela at six weeks is that there was a significant difference between the treatment versus uh, the non-treatment group, and that difference was maintained at 12 months. And of course, uh, with those findings, uh, the, um, the, uh, the authors concluded that hyperbarics works. Now, I'm not an expert in neuropsychiatric testing, uh, but as you can see, there are some overlaps. However, there are some differences in what Weaver and Shine Castles used. The Weavers actually had a, a psychologist perform their testing. Shine Castles were mostly like standardized testing uh, performed on a computer and so forth. So uh, there are some differences in the way they analyzed or assessed their patients as well. Now, who is at risk? Now, this is a paper from South Korea back from um, 1983. Uh, this is more like an epidemiologic study because they didn't have hyperbaric back then, so they just kind of observed with a, a providing uh, supplementary oxygen. And what they found is that about incidence of 12%, uh, other manuscripts uh, describe higher incidence, incidences of uh, delayed neurologic sequelae up to about 20 to 25%. But what was found to be important was loss of consciousness, advance in age. From the table, as you can see, no one uh, below 30 developed delayed neurologic sequelae, but highest incidence was found between the age 50 to 69. And as well as the soak time, the duration of exposure was also uh, important. Now, this finding from the uh, uh, 83 paper was, again, kind of reinforced by the Weaver when he, they looked at their data, uh, again, as a post hoc analysis. And yes, age does matter. The duration of exposure does matter. And as well as the degree of, uh, loss or, uh, degree of the carboxyhemoglobin as well as uh, loss of consciousness. So when we look at some other uh, evidence, um, it appears that the, the timing of hyperbaric therapy also is uh, contributory to perhaps the uh, patient outcome. And when we look at the Goulan paper, which is uh, uh, actually a, a paper that was printed in French in 1969, but was translated and published uh, in a journal of hyperbaric medicine in 86, what they looked at is they separated their group out into the treatment under six hours, 
or treatment after six hours after their exposure to carbon monoxide. And what they found is that if the patients were treated within six hours, there were some uh, significant differences in terms of mortality as well as the incidence of the delayed neurologic sequela. But as you can see, their treatment for hyperbaric was also different from the previous two studies. And one final study uh, by Thom showed that, again, if they've received hyperbaric therapy under six hours, uh, there was no uh, incidence of delayed neurological sequela. So overall, uh, these papers are old and has not been duplicated, uh, but uh, there is some uh, evidence to suggest that early hyperbaric treatment may be more beneficial. So indication, uh, basically whenever there's evidence of uh, you know, uh, in organ damage such as seizure, coma, acute MI, we like to advocate, um, as well as the focal neurologic deficit. In pregnant women, fetal distress has been one of, uh, of the uh, factors that has been identified. Now, irrespective of symptoms, uh, in a general population with a carboxyhemoglobin level of 25% or greater has been advocated uh, for uh, hyperbarics, again, which has been supported by the Weaver uh, uh, manuscript. The 15% in pregnant women and children is an arbitrary number that uh, the, um, the experts has kind of determined. So there's no uh, evidence to support the 15%, but that's uh, generally recommended overall. More recently, uh, Cochrane did a uh, meta-analysis. Uh, of course, you know, there wasn't a lot of randomized controlled trials that's available and out there, and two positives and four negatives were looked at. And what they found is that, yes, when we look at the existing evidence, there really is not a uh, concrete or solid evidence to support uh, the use of hyperbaric uh, therapy, but they also cautioned the interpretation of these data uh, due to the significant difference in methodology as well as the statistical analysis. So they basically concluded that there is insufficient evidence. The ASEP guideline, which is the American College of Emergency Physicians, has a same position along the same line as the Cochrane. It is a therapeutic option, but it cannot be mandated in carbon monoxide poisoning. Personally, I'm a believer in Weaver, so I advocate carbon monoxide poisoning patient to be treated with hyperbaric. And the hyperbaric uh, medicine group here is also uh, an advocate for uh, treatment in CO poisoning. But if you go into uh, other poison control centers or hyperbaric uh, medicine facilities, uh, they definitely will have uh, different opinions compared to ours or mine. Very controversial, not enough evidence overall. Now we're gonna switch gears and talk about met hemoglobin. Uh, this is a, an old uh, family portrait of Fugit family where apparently, a, again, it's a Wikipedia reading. A lot of inbreeding has had happened and had a, uh, an X-linked uh, congenital deficiency uh, got passed along. But I've included also uh, a picture of this gentleman who is also blue. Uh, his name is Paul Carrison, who died about three, four years ago. Apparently, he was very famous, which I never really found out until I did my Tox Fellowship. Uh, he was also known as a Papa Smurf uh, because he was blue, but not necessarily related to hemoglobin. Do you guys know what was the problem? Right, so it's a Argyria. He ingested colloidal silver for homeopathic reasons, um, and then his skin turned blue. Um, again, you know, side effect of colloidal silver. Don't take it. Doesn't work. Um, so, 
Met um, hemoglobin. What is it? Basically, you take your hemoglobin and change the charge state of your iron from 2 plus, which is your normal hemoglobin, to 3 plus by oxidative stress. And what it does is that it no longer is able to carry oxygen. Now, I've uh, kind of uh, included a uh, uh, diagram of hemoglobin physiology. I want you to just kind of focus on your left half for time being, okay? So normally, like carboxyhemoglobin, we also have met hemoglobin uh, in our body, again, about 2%. And that's formed when uh, the body inadvertently uh, produces uh, superoxide oxygen radicals. And it kind of produces uh, met hemoglobin. And the, hemo uh, the red blood cells has its own endogenous pathway to eliminate the met hemoglobin by the cytochrome B5 reductase. And congenital deficiency of that results in hereditary met hemoglobinemia. Now, as you can see, the electron source is NADH, which is produced by glycolysis. And of course, NADH is an electron carrier for electron transport chain. Okay? This process takes about an hour to three hours for the endogenous elimination. So causes of hemoglobinemia, usually medication. Uh, the commonly uh, implicated uh, medication includes dapsone, uh, benzocaine. You know, when the ENT or uh, bronch, you get a little too aggressive with the benzocaine because you want to make them comfortable, um, as well as uh, phenazopyridine. Again, these are common medications that are uh, prescribed as well as used. Uh, other uh, substances or uh, medication include amyl nitrite, uh, other local lidocaine, as well as antimalarials. In terms of chemicals, uh, we have aniline dye. Uh, organic nitrite, such as isobutyl nitrite, is often used as a sexual enhancement agent, uh, particularly in New York City. Uh, naphthalene used to be found in uh, mothballs, but it's predominantly used for deorizing the urinals these days. Nitrate, it's a contamination in well, uh, well water from the fertilizers. Nitrite, preservative in your food, particularly dry fruits, but there's, you know, sulfites these days, and so forth. Of course, uh, again, there is a good correspondence with a met hemoglobin level because the, uh, the the actual pathophysiology is only isolated to the hemoglobin dysfunction in respect to the methemoglobinemia. And even with a, a mild increases, you may not necessarily have a symptoms until you approach about 20%. But earlier on, you can see uh, perhaps a change or abnormality in your pulse ox measurement, and which indicates hypoxia. And of course, you know, it starts with a very vague symptomatology of dizziness, weakness, etc. And then you can have some hypoxic uh, stress effect in your end organs, as well as when you approach 70%, you can have hypoxic injury as well as death. Now, this is a, uh, a diagram that illustrates how the uh, pulse oximetry changes with an increasing uh, he uh, methemoglobin uh, level. Overall, as mentioned before, the pulse ox that we use only uses two wavelengths. Uh, and it compares, it takes the ratio of the absorptions uh, from 660 to uh, 940 to calculate the number that you see. So 100% is equivalent to 0 0.43 uh, absorption uh, ratio. But what hemoglobin does is that it actually has a equal absorption property 
in these two wavelengths. So when you actually take the ratio, it is one. And that is equivalent, based upon the manufacturer's calculation, 85% or the low 80s. But again, that's been experimentally demonstrated uh, by this graph. As you have an increasing hemoglobin level of approximately uh, maybe about 15%, you start uh, noticing that the pulse ox uh, measurement goes uh, below 90%, and it stays in around mid 90%, I'm sorry, mid 80%, even though the methemoglobinemia continues to increase. Now, treatment, uh, pretty straightforward, methylene blue. Um, again, the indication is symptomatic patient and uh, patients with a met hemoglobin level of 25%. Those, uh, if you don't have to remember this, this can be always looked up. One to two milligrams per kilo uh, over five minutes. Yes, you can repeat it, uh, but I wouldn't necessarily repeat it more than twice. Clinical effect should be minutes, uh, but the peak onset of clinical effect should be observed within 30 minutes to an hour. Now, just to look at the pathophysiology and how it's linked to the G6PD deficiency. MET hemoglobin itself does not directly reduce the MET hemoglobin, I'm sorry, methylene blue itself does not directly reduce uh, MET hemoglobin. It has to be uh, reduced by an electron from NADPH to convert it into leukomethylene blue, which is colorless, and that reduced form of uh, methylene blue donates to met hemoglobin and hence you have reverted back into your native hemoglobin form. But as you can see, the NADPH actually comes uh, from the hexose monophosphate shunt where G6PD plays an important role in its synthesis, right? And the NADPH is also utilized to form glutathione formation. So when you have a, a deficiency of a G6PD, you result in a lower uh, or concentration or deficiency in NADPH, and hence you do not have a sufficient amount of glutathione, which can potentially result in hemolysis, secondary to uh, methylene blue administration. Now, again, methylene blue in itself is an oxidizing agent, as well as many other uh, uh, medications. Uh, you can uh, develop methemoglobinemia if you give enough, as well as hemolytic anemia, and Again, uh, direct infusion of methylene blue can uh, worsen your uh, pulse ox uh, meter because the uh, methylene blue absorption is same as the deoxy or reduced uh, hemoglobin absorption spectrum. And you may immediately see some discoloration in the skin, which is transient, but discoloration in the uh, urine may be uh, prolonged as methylene blue is eliminated. And certain occasions, uh, there are some case reports that serotonin syndrome has been uh, associated with the uh, acute methylene blue administration, particularly if the patient uh, is also on other serotonergic uh, medication. So, Going back to the uh, G6PD uh, deficiency. Now, again, I'm not an expert on G6PD uh, deficiency, but there's apparently uh, 400 different variants. And one of the more classically described variants is the Mediterranean form, which is class two in uh, WHO cl uh, classification that has uh, approximately less than 10% enzymatic activity with uh, intermittent hemolysis. That's the classification. And then uh, uh, A minus, uh, which is a class three, uh, which has about 10 to 60 percent um, enzymatic activity of G6PD uh, with a uh, hemolysis occurring with the oxidative stress. Now when we look at 
the uh, United States, the prevalence has been estima estimated to be about 4 to 7 percent. But, you know, when we look at some specific ethnic group in uh, African Americans, uh, the uh, prevalence could be high as 12%. And that's based upon, you know, the U.S. military study because they are interested in, uh, you know, starting on uh, anti-malaria perhaps or any type of uh, prophylactic uh, uh, medication as their uh, troops are deployed. So uh, there's a lot of data based upon uh, the military studies. Now, depending on what uh, manuscript that you look at, uh, there's a whole list of uh, different medications that are to be avoided, and methylene blue is always one of those uh, medications that is indicated. But if you actually kind of recall uh, your uh, medication list that induces methemoglobin, we also see dapsone, uh, where is it? Right there, dapsone, pyridium, primaquine, and then chemical-wise, isobutyl-nitrite, right? They're all oxidizing agent. Overall, uh, hemolysis due to methylene blue has been well-documented in numerous case reports. Uh, so there is no uh, you know, controversy about that. There are some case reports, such as the one published by Rosen, that there has been some delayed uh, effect of methylene blue in reversing the methemoglobinemia. Again, that has been attributed to the low level of NADPH that's available, or at least in competition between the glutathione formation as well as the uh, methylene blue uh, conversion into leukomethylene blue. But overall, these cases, uh, the patient was administered methylene blue uh, with success, but later to discovered to have a hemolytic anemia between about 24 hours to 36 hours. And later, this G6PD screening was performed, and uh, the, their deficiency was identified in uh, that manner. So the question is, should we administer methylene blue or not in patients with G6PD uh, deficiency? Overall, yes, it works. Yes, you will encounter hemolytic anemia about 24 hours later. And I think there's really no uh, expert opinion about this. Uh, in general, its use has been discouraged. Um, but I'd like to think that you, know, you have to think about in a case-to-case -case basis. I prefer a live patient with hemolysis than a dead patient or with a, a significant neural deficit. So uh, if a patient is hypotensive or unstable, I would say give it, and we'll deal with the hemolysis. Um, again, you know, it has, hemolysis has its own complications, but um, there really isn't a good alternative uh, therapy to uh, hemoglobin, which I will discuss. So if you decided not to give methylene blue, these are your options. Exchange transfusion. That makes sense. It's going to require a lot of blood and a lot of time, and it will be messy. Hyperbaric therapy. Okay, it's been tried. There's no clear evidence to demonstrate that hyperbaric uh, is a, a, an effective way, but it kind of makes sense. You're buying time, basically, by increasing the, again, the dissolved oxygen content, because it doesn't reverse methemoglobinemia. And case report here, yes, they did both, and patient had a good outcome. Third option is vitamin C. Not only prevents you from developing cold, but it can you know, treat methemoglobin. Now, unfortunately, the conversion is significantly delayed up to about eight 
to uh, 10 hours. So it is not the best uh, alternative, but it is what we have. So this is a case report or case series from Brazil. They did not have methylene blue. They report a case of five, predominantly pediatric population. And as you can see, you have a maximum met hemoglobin level of each individual patient and 24 hours later. What they did is that uh, because they had, didn't have methylene blue, they give uh, vitamin C. Uh, recommended dose is two grams IV per day, and they divided that into the whatever number of doses. And within 24 hours, yes, it did decrease your numbers. This, I'm not exactly sure what happened, but I would consider that as a treatment failure. Okay? So yes, it can have an effect, but it takes hours. Compared to methylene blue, it's a matter of minutes. Overall, uh, based upon their description, um, you know, the tachycardia has been noted, but all pediatric uh, populations, so these, except for this one perhaps, the tachycardia is probably in the upper limit of normal, and their symptomatology doesn't appear to be uh, a severe poisoning. Another case report. In this case, they used 10 grams every six hours. And this is a, again, South Korean. They're a little ballsy there. Um, they don't have methylene blue, apparently. Uh, again, this is a, a case report that was published a, a year ago. And 84-year-old woman ingested Dapsone and developed methemoglobinemia. They decided at 64% to give methylene, uh, I'm sorry, vitamin C. And next dose was, again, six hours later. Yes, it cut in about half. But, you know, 38% is still not a very good number, right? And, of course, they gave more, and it took up to about uh, 24, maybe near about 28 hours to bring it down to 21%, right? Um, but overall, you know, what they've uh, reported here is that vitamin C uh, administration in high doses has been uh, related to uh, renal insufficiency and the uh, renal failure because it increases the oxalate secretion in proximal tubules, right? Similar to ethylene glycol. The renal toxicity is related to the precipitation of oxalate uh, crystals in the proximal tubules. So mechanism-wise, it's similar. But one of the things that they forgot to do about Dapsone is to apply the adjunctive therapy. The dapsone itself is not an acidizing agent. It has to be metabolized by the liver once again, uh, 3A and 2C9, to be converted to uh, dapsone hydroxylamine. And it is this active metabolite that creates hemolysis and methemoglobinemia. So, and this can be blocked by cementidine, which has a, a wide range of uh, cytochrome P450 uh, inhibitory effect. So there was no report of such in this case report. Hence, that's why you see a resurgence or increasing in the uh, met hemoglobin level. So it's important for Dapsone that you have to block the uh, metabolism. So we're going to conclude with some uh, take-home points. Now, carbon monoxide pathophysiology is very complex beyond carbon, uh, carboxyhemoglobin formation. Um, I advocate hyperbaric but when you go to your corresponding uh, jobs uh, at a different institution, they will definitely have different opinions based upon the, the evidence that was discussed. Uh, methemoglobin, predominantly medication-induced um, as well as chemically-induced. First-line therapy, methylene blue, it works great. Uh, but again, 
in a uh, patient population with G6PD deficiency, which is not commonly encountered to start, but you know we are, uh, you know, has a highest prevalence in the African American uh, population. Alternative therapy do exist, but it is not as effective as methylene blue. So again, a little plug for MedConsult. Um, our number is now listed with a paging operator. I had some issues with that, but if uh, you don't, here is the uh, the number. Um, we are more than happy to speak to uh, you guys. Hyperbaric service is also available. There. Are more than happy to uh, talk to you guys as well. Now, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention, and I'll take uh, any questions. So, in the in the ICU, we deal. You know, we deliver all kinds of medications. You know, it, just the whole just empty the pharmacy many right. times in a lot of these folks and. How um, in these clinically unstable patients oftentimes would, um, I guess, do you have any recommendations about specific things that we should be, that should raise our suspicion of methemoglobinemia besides 85%, you know, on, on pulse ox or um, the cyanosis or um, other things that may help us kind of open our minds to putting that in the differential? Got it. So I think overall, um, it, these type of uh, hemoglobinopathy is uh, difficult to uh, diagnose once the patients are in critical care or ICU setting uh, because, again, it, those population comes in with a uh, presumed diagnosis already. Uh, but outside of the history, um, the hypoxia does not change with oxygenation. Uh, like, for instance, you know, whether the patient is intubated or not with 100% oxygenation, if there is a met hemoglobin uh, present, that is not going to change the, the degree of hypoxia that is there. Now, of course, you know, the routine approach of uh, hypoxia is to check your vent setting, get a chest X-ray, and, of course, hopefully, it's part of, you know, your routine to get a blood gas, right? Almost all intubated patients uh, get an uh, arterial blood gas. Um, and thus, you know, if you do those type of routine, you may instantly pick it up. But overall, uh, in regards to specific drugs, it, we saw, here we go. So these are some of the uh, different types of chemicals and drugs that are commonly associated. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We're going there. Um, so these are the drugs that are commonly associated. And things being common is such as identified here. And unfortunately, you're not going to be able to identify what the patient was ingested previously coming to the ICU. The one of the things that, you know, that has been identified is like the nitroprusside. And again, nitroprusside has its own issues with a, a cyanide poisoning. Uh, but again, when the patient do develop hemodynamic uh, instability on nitroprusside, blood gas is probably one of the things that you should consider uh, to assess for the development of methemoglobin. Um, unfortunately, uh, there really isn't a lot other medication that has been identified uh, that is used in the uh, critical care level to specifically say that you should have a higher suspicion. Um, even nitroglycerin, if you use it too much, 
it is an oxidizing agent and can cause in regards to like hemolysis and met hemoglobin formation. Thus, you know, uh, just having an, an understanding uh, of what can potentially cause met hemoglobinemia and remembering what you did. Maybe sometimes there is plenty of accidents of runaway IVs and uh, that sometimes can uh, acutely change the, uh, the patient's uh, condition and it's all about kind of like touching the patient and reassessing. Any comments on uh, hyperbaric? I would defer uh, any complication patient uh, questions to the hyperbaric team that's present. Thank you. Okay. Um, Great. Thanks. That.